Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Is former President Trump about to be indicted? As you know, he's facing the possibility of criminal charges over that hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels. A source close to the Trump legal team tells CNN if Trump is actually indicted, they do not expect an arrest before next week. And the prosecutors say they have not made a final decision. So tonight we'll dive into all of this. Should Donald Trump be indicted? Are prosecutors considering the national security implications? And if any of us were accused of the same thing, would we be indicted? Our panel of experts are here to answer those questions. Plus, chaos in Miami Beach during spring break. Two people were shot to death on the streets over the weekend. Huge, unruly crowds. One local official calls it a criminal takeover. I will speak to him in just a moment. And Ted Lasso took over the White House press room today. Yes, sir, a familiar face. Hi. Trent Krim. <laughs> Fake journalist. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, uh, Trent, nice to see you. How do you feel about Kansas City being one of the named hosting cities for the uh, 2026 World Cup? Ooh, here I was, hoping for a softball. <laughs> we'll tell you what Ted Lasso and Jason Sudeikis and the White House want everyone to know about mental health. Okay, we've got a lot to talk about tonight. So here with me, the star of the Grio, Natasha Alford. A man who loves a good Talking Heads reference, David Urban. <laughs> Attorney who knows a lot about presidents and legal trouble, Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. And the somewhat serious host of the Very Serious Podcast, Josh Barrow. Great to see all of you guys tonight. Thanks so Great. much for Hi. being here. Same as it ever was. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so let's do this thought exercise that I've been doing all day about this possible Trump indictment, because I want to hear all of your thoughts on this. If this were a regular person, if this were any of us, and we had paid hush money payment to someone that we had had uh, an alleged tryst with, and we did it, we um, basically falsified our internal business records about it, would the Manhattan DA be indicting us? Nick, go ahead. Depends. I mean, again, you're saying you have to take the premise that you're falsifying the records to basically cheat on your taxes. Oh, yeah, that's what you have to I premise see. it on. But, but you're making a leap because there, the actual charge isn't that Donald Trump cheated the IRS or cheated on his taxes. It was internal records. No, no. The internal records were used to prepare the tax returns. So by creating those internal records that are false, 
That's what cheated the IRS. It's also the internal records of the Trump organization that related to the financial statements that were false, that cheated banks, that cheated insurance companies. I mean, there is one overarching theme here that is falsification of documents in the Trump organization cheated a whole host of people, including the government, the insurance companies and the banks. And that is really what we're waiting to see. So not a victimless see. crime. It's not a victimless crime okay. by no means. So why, why isn't the answer then yes, that if any of us did that, that we would be indicted? Of course. By the so you of say yes. Of course you would. Of okay. course you would. Josh? Well, but I mean, any of those crimes, if there was a good way to charge them t- correctly, they could be charged with they could be charged directly. He could be charged with tax fraud. He could. My understanding of the of the theory that the DA would pursue here would be that it would be a campaign finance violation. Well, but that's the, idea- it, that's the whole problem. Everybody's saying that, and we don't know what that indictment's going to look like. Sure, but we it, just don't know. Is there a reason to believe that he saved on his taxes here? I mean, whether you say it was sure. a payment to an attorney or you say that it was a hush money payment, it's a business expense. Either way, why would that lower your tax bill well, to mischaracterize the nature of why you were spending the money? Because in your business? You, it's not a valid deduction to deduct payments of hush money to keep people quiet when you're claiming them falsely as monies paid to an attorney for proper legal services. Well, but that, I mean, again, I mean, this is, you know, you, you could have, if, if it was an f- invasion of federal taxes, you could have charged in federal court. I mean, the, the, the weird thing about the, the campaign finance violation is a question is, was this done for a campaign purpose? Did you make the payment because you thought it would help you get elected president? Or did you make the payment because you were embarrassed or because you were trying to hide it from your wife or all sorts of things? You could have similarly have an issue about whether you were making the payment to protect your business so, reputation. So what's the answer? Do you think that if well, any, I, any I, of us would be... A, Regular no, person and, be charged. And, 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 he has, and he has not been charged with any of these crimes directly, nor was he charged with any of the issues around valuations of properties. I mean, that was what the Manhattan DA was looking into some years ago. And they had a prosecution. They prosecuted the Trump organization. That, they prosecuted Alan Weisenberg. They never charged. We don't know that. We don't know that. But I mean, the, the, the manner in which this investigation has proceeded and the thing that they shut down and then reopened, I think, strongly suggests that they are and, and that they already had the trial yeah, of Alan Weisselberg. That, so yeah. That's not true. I mean, listen, the, look at Michael Donald Cohen, Trump. just let me say this. Michael Cohen, who is the key witness in this, says that we don't know all that the DA has. Of course, that's true. But he said, I mean, since he's had more of a window into it than any of us, he says that what we all think it is, that there's more there's more there. And Michael Avenatti tweeting from jail today said that once we do know what is there, that the prosecution will be, you know, knocked on its butt. This is according is to Michael. Really Michael he, he tweeted it out today. I was surprised. I had to ask Ellie earlier today. I said, how did he tweet from jail? <laughs> and he said, presumably he's got an email and he tweets, sends it out to somebody and he tweets. But he, he said, you know, I've seen this. I've seen these documents. I know what's here. I was a part of all this. And if the Trump lawyers get a hold of this, the prosecutors will be embarrassed. Right. So I, we don't know what's there. So let's let's wait and see. But the, the notion that somehow Donald Trump is sitting in his laptop at home on TurboTax, right, dropping things into, you know, pull pull down, you know, menus into doing his taxes himself is is somewhat, I think, naive. This was, you know, as you, you may know, like Donald Trump is not big on granularity. Right. So I'm guessing that however this was categorized by Alan Weisselberg or somebody else in the organization, it was, it was all, you know, it, it was unknown to the, the former president. And Nick, I'll let you answer that in a second. But Natasha, your thoughts? Well, I would hope there would be more to the case, considering that this has been called one of the hardest cases to prove, right, of all of the different pots that are kind of cooking right now for what Donald Trump could be held accountable for. Um, but I think if I could go 10,000 foot, if that's OK, I think the reason why it's somewhat easy to dismiss for the average person is because they're 
Donald Trump's behavior, the things he's been accused of, have been so egregious that this seems small compared to, you know, a phone call trying to change the course of the election. So I think given how long the time span has been between what these accusations are and now it finally being brought up, the public imagination just it doesn't evoke the same outrage as before. So, Nick, back to um, what David was just saying. He wasn't doing his own taxes. He, he can make the argument. I don't keep my internal records at the Trump Organization and I don't do my own taxes. Can't he wash his hands of it that way? Good luck to him. First of all, he took the Fifth Amendment 450 times, meaning that he basically said that a truthful answer to any of those questions on each of those crimes would tend to incriminate me. I can't believe that Alvin Bragg doesn't have at least five to ten of those that he can get to the jury on with Donald Trump that he can combine with this particular hush payment. And the fact that you are creating these false documents, you know that they're being done basically so you don't have to pay taxes, so you don't have to you get better rates on your bank loans, you get better rates on your insurance, and you're cheating people right across the board. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that. Maybe he I, was I would doing it most Americans, I would suspect most Americans think all corporations do that if you took a poll. But right? don't. That doesn't make it right. I, no, no, I don't want to say it makes it right. But if you said, you know, what, do tax attorneys try to lower your tax burden? Absolutely. Do tax attorneys try to structure your, your deals and your, your finances so you pay less taxes and more? Absolutely. But they don't that, lie. I'm not lie. saying but, 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 but you, have to, you have to prove that in court. Falsifying right. business records in New York is a misdemeanor unless you were doing it in furtherance of another crime, in which case it's a felony. But then you have to show that he was doing it in the furtherance of another crime, and then you essentially have to litigate what that crime would be. The intent requirements for tax crimes and for campaign finance crimes tend to be extremely high. The, the theory here, if it was a campaign finance-related prosecution, is actually very similar to the one that federal prosecutors tried and failed to prosecute John Edwards on. And it's extremely hard to demonstrate both that people, the, the specific reason that people were making a payment like this, they might make for many reasons. And then generally with campaign finance crimes, you have to show that people knew that what they were doing was illegal, which is hard in general and is especially hard with Donald Trump. And as, as from taking the Fifth Amendment, the whole point of the Fifth Amendment is that you're allowed to take the Fifth Amendment. In a civil proceeding, you can draw adverse inferences from that. But in a, in a criminal proceeding, you can't point to Donald Trump take, took the Fifth and say, hey, he must be guilty. He took right, the Fifth. That's what the Fifth is for. Right, I think it's three, three no's, one yes. But you got 450 <laughs> And one bigger picture. <laughs> That's right, and I appreciate the bigger picture. But, but um, today, uh, so it was interesting to hear the DA, Alvin Bragg, say that he hadn't decided yet. Not that he said that directly, but that was the, our reporting, is that they hadn't exactly decided yet. And here's the Wall Street Journal editorial board on how he, what their thoughts are. Um, they say prosecutors use their discretion every day not to bring charges for any number of reasons. Mr. Bragg came into office vowing not to charge numerous nonviolent crimes against public order. A wise prosecutor must consider the potential harm to confidence in the rule of law in bringing a prosecution that at least half the country will deem political. And it is true, on his first day, Alvin Bragg put out this list of the low-level crimes that he would not be prosecuting. Number nine was outdated offenses such as adultery, mm. which this hints at. So what are your thoughts about um, what's next? I mean, I'm very interested in how 
other members of the GOP have actually responded to Donald Trump's reaction to it. I think it says a lot uh, because regardless of what happens to this case, it seems there's some fear. There's some anxiety around what Donald Trump is trying to channel when he calls people to come out and to rally in his defense. Um, You saw that, you know, DeSantis sort of discouraged people from going out there, but said, you know, took a swipe at Donald Trump. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, you know, we're not going to New York. That's just communist Democrats. But I'm going to go down to Texas and support him. So there seems to be a backing away uh, now that we've seen how serious January 6th was and the fact that, you know, this whole conversation about Donald Trump's role in that um, really seems like a stain on the party. It'll also be interesting, I think, you know, this may be one of the cases that's much easier to kind of step up and speak up about, right? You get to, you know, the, the, the Fulton mm-hmm. County case, may not be so many voices. You get a federal indictment, maybe even less, right? So this is a, a place where if you're in the Republican Party, it's kind of a safe space to come out and say, that nasty Democrat in New York, right? It's, it's easier to come out and make the case against that. But it yeah. depends yeah. what the allegation is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't yeah. seen it yet yeah. today. Yeah. All right, friends, thank you very much for all of that. Coming up, one city official says spring break is actually a criminal takeover in Miami Beach. Two people have been killed. But there's a plan to deal with the chaos. I will speak to that official next. Spring break in Miami Beach turned violent this weekend. Two people were shot to death on the street. One city official says there's been a criminal takeover of the city. That city commissioner joins me now, Commissioner Alex Fernandez. Commissioner, thanks so much for being here. What do you mean there's been a criminal takeover of your city? Well, I want to say Miami Beach is a beautiful city. Miami Beach is a safe city. But we know there are two weekends out of the year during spring break when we have criminal behavior that takes over the streets of our iconic Ocean Drive. And the message has to be clear. Miami Beach is shutting the door on spring break. We're not going to allow this criminal takeover to continue in our city anymore. And I'm going to be proposing measures at our next commission meeting to make sure that history does not repeat itself. We saw it in 2021 when people were murdered in our streets and we were forced to implement an emergency measure. It happened again in 2022 and history repeated again itself this year. We need to act ahead and we need to pass the measures now so that it doesn't happen in 2020. We'll get to those measures in a second, but can you just describe what it's like? Are these college students that are coming in and like, you know, what we traditionally think of as spring break, college students drinking too much, coming into a city, you know, being rowdy, or or is there something else that has come to Miami Beach? Listen, I I highly doubt that these are your typical spring breakers. They're lawbreakers. They're not students. Uh, These these are people that are coming into our city. A lot of them uh, probably know each other from some of these incidents seem to be targeted. Uh, You know, you have a guy walking down the street that pulls out a, a gun shoots someone in, in, in the head in the middle of Ocean Drive. And that's not right. And that doesn't define who we are as a city because of the rest of the year, we are a safe city. In fact, during the day, during spring break, we are a tale of two cities. During the daytime, we have positive activations. We have the, the, the international volleyball tournament happening in our streets, arts and concerts going on. And then comes nighttime and you have a criminal takeover 
where where you have our police officers outnumbered by thousands of people who even tried flipping cars on Ocean Drive. And the message has to be clear. Miami Beach is shutting the door on spring break because they're not spring breakers. There are lawbreakers that are destroying the image of a beautiful and safe city. Okay, so let's talk about what city officials like yourself and police can do. What's the answer? Well, listen, we have hundreds of police officers within a very small area of our city. We're talking about 5th Street to 15th Street. We have hundreds of officers from Miami Beach there. We've reinforced it with officers from Miami-Dade County, in addition to our municipal partners, in addition to even ATF agents that are deployed out there where we, we, we have license plate readers so that we can intercept those individuals that have uh, outstanding warrants. But what we have learned is that we have a gun violence issue. And for next year, one of the things that I am proposing that I want to see implemented for, for next year is setting a controlled environment. We know that we have an issue on Ocean Drive and Loomis Park. We need to have centralized checkpoints with metal detectors where everyone has to go through to make sure we do not have guns penetrating into this area. And from now, we need to start saying, based on history, based on the fact that for three years in a row, we've had to institute a curfew in the third weekend of March, we need to say now that for next year, we will be implementing the curfew for 2024 so that the message is clear. We're shutting the door on spring break. If we need to roll back business hours, we should be doing that now for next year. And if we need a restriction on alcohol sales, let's implement it now yep. so that the word gets out into, into the world. Miami Beach is not your playground for spring break. Go somewhere else. Commissioner Fernandez, thank you very much. Uh, we certainly hope that the violence now is tamped down in Miami Beach. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Miami Beach is a safe city and it'll continue being under our watch. Thank you. My panel is back with me also. Anna Navarro joins us, a resident of Miami-Dade. So what's it like? Well, I'm pissed as hell because I'm a Miami-Dade resident. I pay taxes to Miami-Dade. Miami-Dade is a uh, county with 30-some thousand 30-some municipalities, including Miami Beach. And I avoid Miami Beach every March and April, like if there were zombies who eat flesh that (laughs) spread the bubonic plague Mm -hmm. every single year. And I've heard the same outrage from city officials year after year, and nothing gets done. And so my money doesn't go to Miami Beach because I don't dare cross the causeway in that time. I don't know what they're going to do about it, but they've got to do something about it. You know, guns change everything, David. And so what used to be just, as we said, raucous, you know, bathing suits and people drinking too much. Now there's gun violence. And what he's suggesting to change spring break is having a cordoned off area with metal detectors on the beach or on the streets or bars that college kids can go through. That's what it's come to. Yeah, and they'll just These go are ahead. not they'll college do, kids. Yeah, and that, that, and that, my sorry. point is that that's, that's for spring break, yeah. our traditional thought of yeah. spring break, they've, whoever is bringing the guns is ruining it for the right. traditional but they're not, spring they're, These are not college kids. I was going to say, to, to the point he said, you know, there's lawbreakers and there's spring breakers. I think these are lawbreakers. And look, if you put up a cord, you put up mags, people are going to go someplace else. The bad people will go other places, right? The good people will go inside the mags. They'll have fun. The bad people will stay outside and create a problem someplace else. So I think, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a systemic problem that needs to be approached holistically. And, you know, you have, you have, if you have uh, 
uh, curfews that they're doing now and they have an increased police presence, I think that'll help. If you go to New Orleans, if you go to Mardi Gras, right, there are places very raucous, lots of drinking, alcohol consumption and, and, and minimal crime for whatever reason. And, and lots of cities manage to do this. I'm not quite sure why this specific part of one town has a specific problem. Don't know. What do you think? It, it seems like a branding problem, right? As we said, this is spring break. So people come kind of knowing they're looking for raucous. They're knowing they can get away with it. As you said, we've been hearing these stories for years back to back. Mm-hmm. Back in 2020, 100 people arrested in one weekend over spring break, um, but met with America's gun problem, which I think that was the key of that interview. It, it's not going away and it's touching every single part of our lives, whether you're talking about going to church or you're going to school or you're going to spring break. And so until you address that fundamental problem, I mean, all of this is putting Band-Aids on the issue. I think it's it's going to continue to yeah, but, to but, but there's spring worse. break at Fort Lauderdale, South Padre Island. There's plenty of spring break locations. And I said, like Mardi Gras, right? Mardi Gras goes on. It's raucous there. It is it is out of control in lots of ways, but there's not gun violence. Well, that's so I'm not why quite I say sure a, why. That's why I say it's a branding problem as well, because once people know that it's this has a, repu- I wish it it's a reputation you. for no. getting away with it, they yeah, can continue. To I mean, I, I think it's conceivable that the metal detectors might be might be helpful next year. It's a fairly contained geographical area on a, on on ocean uh, on on basically on the beachfront in Miami Beach. But I mean, you know, Fort Lauderdale went through this in the right. 1980s. <laughs> they had a, a problem with disorder at spring break, and the city basically decided we don't really want to be the spring break capital anymore. But they didn't have gun violence when no, but they, time. but they, but the so the strategy. There, I mean, what what the commissioner said about communicating in advance what we're going to do that's not going to be fun. Uh, the value in that in getting people who might cause trouble not to show up. There's value in that, and they had. A, I mean, at that time, it really was college kids, and they were having a campaign on college campuses saying, you know, don't come to Fort Lauderdale. You'll be arrested if you have an open container. They went, you know, bars and and other public facilities. They did a lot of enforcement around: Are you over your capacity? Are you serving minors? That sort of thing. They basically clamped down on the fun to an extent that was successful in driving the party away. So it might be possible for Miami Beach to have success with something like that that's communicated in advance. I really hope you're right. Here's, you know, the problem. Miami Beach has great clubs, (laughs) great restaurants, and it's 80 degrees while it's 38 degrees in New York. And so we, we have a real problem, and they have to take very specific and concrete measures because this is getting worse and worse and worse by the year. I live there. I've lived in Miami-Dade for 43 years now. And I am beyond myself that there is an area of my county that for me is completely off limits for basically three weeks. Because I think that if I cross the causeway, I might die. Well, I, I mean, you're... you're- I, you have reason to be concerned. In the past three weeks, which is during the spring break time, they had 332 arrests this year, and they confiscated 70 guns off the street. I'll tell you what they have to do. They have to work with the people who own the clubs. They have to work with the people who own the restaurants. They have to work with law enforcement. They have to work with the county. They have to work. I mean, it's got to be a holistic but What approach. do you want the restaurants to do? I don't know what, what the hell the restaurants are going to do, but I know this. I know that I spend a lot of money in Miami Beach restaurants, and I know I, know I don't spend it for three weeks 
during spring break. Yeah. yeah. And to Anna's point, the businesses matter. They just had a, you know, a commissioner's meeting, a, a chain a commerce meeting, excuse me. And business owners were yelling at the city council members because they were saying we do not want to extend the overnight curfew. So there's conflicting interests and needs and they have to work together if they're going to get a solution. Yeah. Great point. Thank you all very much. All right. I want to go back to Miami Beach. <laughs> Who doesn't? We all want it to be safe there for everybody. Meanwhile, Jason Sudeikis was at the White House today talking Ted Lasso, mental health, and taking questions. Here I was, hoping for a softball. Okay, um... Oh, by the way, happy International Day of Happiness, everyone. Good segue. <laughs> Anna refuses to observe it. She's decided that she's not observant of it. I, we can Listen, see that. for Lent, yes. I gave up Lent. You have Lent. Well, you gave up religion. I like that. And it will be my International Day of Happiness if Donald Trump gets indicted. Okay. I will be out <laughs> in the streets. Way to weave it together. Way to weave all of our segments together. I like that. Dancing salsa. All right. But it really is the International Happiness Day today. You and of course, no, I'm not kidding. And I'm going to tell you why it is later. But first, one of the happiest shows, Ted Lasso, was at the White House today. And the cast met with President Biden and the First Lady. And they discussed, obviously, something very important in this country, mental health and the importance of support and community. Before the meeting, Jason Sudeikis, also coach Ted Lasso, took questions in the White House briefing room. So take a look at this. Uh, yes, sir, a familiar face. Hi. Trent Crim. <laughs> Fake journalist. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, uh, Trent, nice to see you. How do you feel about Kansas City being one of the named hosting cities for the uh, 2026 World Cup? Ooh, here I was, hoping for a softball. Okay, um, you know what? I'm very excited, truth, truth be told. Yeah, Kansas City is going to be one of these teams. Uh, I mean, I love this town. What I am genuinely worried about is once we get all these folks from all over the world to come to Kansas City and see our city, eat our food, meet our people, you're going to have you know, a lot of folks that won't want to move away. That's what I'm worried about. I love those guys. I'm so happy to see Ted Lasso back. Yeah, Kansas City native. Yeah, he is. He's a Kansas City now. How about all those stuffed shirts in the briefing room? People weren't laughing hard enough, I thought. By the way, that's the most crowded I think I've ever. seen that briefing room Yeah, ever. that's ever. true. <laughs> that's true. Poor, but poor I mean, Corinne. She's probably like, why don't these people show up for me? By the way, there was, there was a, a, a reporter, I don't know who he is or where he's from, who was, he behaved like he was raised by wolves today. What did he uh, do? He was protesting. He was speaking up to the point where one of the journalists there uh apologize to the people in America because you, they're supposed to be doing their job there. He was doing it while they were trying to give this press conference. I think it is so important that we are normalizing mental health struggles and challenges. I think it is, it is crucial that we take the stigma out of it, that we take the shame out of it, and that we talk about it openly. I appreciate you saying that. And I think that... Um that's part of what Ted Lasso has done, which is that's a plot line, obviously. So it was a plot line in the past few seasons of Ted Lasso where he suffers from panic attacks because of everything that he's gone through. So let's listen to what Jason Sudeikis, who, of course, plays Ted Lasso, said about mental health today at the White House. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter uh, who you voted for, we all probably, I assume, we all know someone who has uh, or have been that someone ourselves, actually, that's struggled, that's felt isolated, that's felt anxious, that has felt alone. 
right? And it's actually one of the many things that, that uh, believe it or not, uh, that we all have in common. Natasha, it's so interesting. We are so much more conscious of mental health issues and struggles than we were 10 years ago, say, Mm -hmm. and open, you know, removing the stigma by talking about it openly. And I think stories like this, right, the storytelling shows like this are important for normalizing that and changing. I know that I grew up in a household where even talking about therapy, that was seen as like a cultural thing. Like our people don't really do that. And we've gotten rid of that. A new generation has come up. They're telling their stories on social media. But ironically, I think social media also contributes to some (laughs) of the depression that we have. We know that isolation, that is a risk factor for depression. So it's like while we're sharing our stories, at the same time, I think we still need to get in rooms together (laughs) and make sure that we are practicing community and really looking out for each other. Great point. Double-edged sword. Yeah, I mean, I agree that that it, uh, 20 years ago, maybe longer, 40 years ago, going to therapy was, you're saying it's a cultural no-no, and also like a gender no-no. I mean, a lot of men right. felt that that was for sissies. Yeah, and, and listen, I, this is kind of maybe my cultural background coming from the military. I went to West Point. A lot of people served in the military. You know, the 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, a lot of people came back, suffered from a lot of things. And I think it... Um, by, by seeing soldiers, tough guys, right, really tough men coming back who served in special forces and in combat and going and getting therapy, I think that gave permission to lots of other men to say it's okay for me to go and, and talk to somebody. So I think that was very helpful along the way as well. Josh? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think an unfortunate interaction between this and our politics is there's been a sort of fashion for hopelessness in politics that feeds into personal feelings that people have that basically like, oh, like, well, everything is so terrible in the world and therefore how can you, how can you possibly be happy? I think it's important to talk about mental health while also ha- talking about it in an optimistic way about that, that things can be addressed and there are so many great things in the world to be happy about and finding the way to allow yourself to be happy about that, which, which very often includes the necessity of mental health. Treatment, but I think that there, there is a very optimistic story to tell. And I, think we, I think we have to give credit to Joe Biden and this White House's administration for normalizing it, for, for bringing it into the White House and giving it that pulpit, right? The White House press briefing. Because, you know, it's the biggest pulpit in America and he's doing it. So thank I was you to say, you had the lead in there about International Happiness Day and what countries and you know, Finland was noted there. And one of the things that talk, you, you, you talked about leading is support and, and culture. And that's one of the things that was noted about these countries, that they have a lot of, um, you know, they have a great health care system. I got to tell you this. Mental, as a, as a Latina, this. when I see yeah. Finland, Derm- Denmark, I'm like, how can you be happy in that cold? <laughs> I know, but every year they are. Finland wins yeah. every single year. And there's all these Scandinavian countries yeah. that do win. And they and yet say, no one's moving there. Although <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, quickly, the U.S. Quickly. rankings, Hawaii is, Hawaii is always at the top of the ho- okay, happiness rankings domestically. That, so, that, that works for her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now, now she's happy. Thank you for that. There's water, too. Okay. Yeah. You can actually Sun go and water, exactly. All right, everyone, stay with us because we need to re-examine college. Is that the only way to get a good job? We're going to look at the numbers that show that that may not be true. The U.S. is facing a massive shortage of skilled trade workers like auto mechanics, plumbers, electricians. This is according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. These are good paying jobs and we desperately need them. So why aren't we still training kids in these fields? I'm back with my panel. How come David and I are the only two who remember shop class? And I, I took shop class. I made some really, I made a very lovely fruit bowl in metal class, and I think I made a stool in wood shop. There you go. So there you we go. need that. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, the problem, Josh, is that at some point we decided that 
kids needed to be on the college track. All kids needed to be sort of funneled into the college track. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's working for all kids. No, I mean, and, and I think that, uh, I mean, we've started seeing a, a realization from some employers about that maybe they don't need to require college so much. David was mentioning in the break, Pennsylvania, along with a number of other states, has had an initiative where they're saying so many government jobs require college degrees. Do these all really need to require college degrees? And then similarly, in the private sector, I mean, we went through such a long period, basically 20 years where the economy was on average pretty sluggish. Unemployment was usually over 6%. Employers could make whatever rules they wanted, and they always had employees available to hire. The last few years have not been like that at all. And so companies, as they are desperate to hire, are trying to figure out, well, can we be a little more creative about who can we employ in what positions? But you can't do that with a plumber. Some of these, some of these positions, these skilled trade jobs, you really have to spend years learning a skill. And that's been a problem, especially because, you know, it's sort of another hangover of that old economy that we had where there was always slack in the economy is we decided we needed a really big infrastructure bill that probably would have been really great for the economy circa 2012 when we finally got around to an enacting it. We did it at exactly the time the labor market was at its tightest. It's gotten really expensive to hire anyone to do anything. And now you have the government competing against private companies, trying to hire people who can build things. It's driven up the price of everything. So yeah, in the long run, we need a lot more people who can do these jobs, especially because, you know, if AI ends up automating a lot more knowledge jobs, you will still need plumbers. Mm. I'll give you the stats. AI is not laying bricks. Right. I cannot tell you how happy I am that we are talking about this because when I'm when I'm here in New York, everybody lives in apartments and everybody has a, a super and everybody has this. Okay, I live in Miami where there are raccoons trying to get into my roof. There are iguanas <laughs> pooping in my pool. The, you know, You're really total, selling it. It's a very first world problem. Oh, and there are people getting shot in Miami Beach. So please stop coming to Miami because I need the housing prices to go down. So, it is, I, I mean, people who actually live in places with houses, mm. old houses, my house is 100 years old. The amount of money, maintenance, the amount of things that go into... Things that are practical, yeah. right? AI cannot fix no, we need my these, roof. No, we need these people. And this is according to NPR, which is citing this firm called Handshake about employment. The application rate for young people seeking technical jobs like plumbing, building, and electrical work dropped by 49% in 2022 compared to just 2020. This is from the online recruiting platform, Handshake. While posting for those roles, automotive technicians, equipment installers, respiratory therapists, to name a few, saw on average 10 applications each in 2020. They got about five postings in 2022. Yeah. And, I mean, this is, we're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. I mean, I think two things can be true at the same time. When my mom was growing up in the Bronx, she wanted to go to college and she was told, you know, you should be a secretary, A lot of Puerto Rican young women were becoming secretaries. She was funneled down this path and told she couldn't go to college. So I think it was important that there was a shift. There was a challenging of, yes, there are people who can be college bound from all different types of backgrounds. But at the same time, there was a stigma attached to certain vocational careers as if they didn't pay a good amount of money. And they do. And as a former teacher, I can tell you not every student wants to go to college. Not every student needs to. There's all different types of intelligences. So I think we have to diversify the way that we look at and also talk about what that what matters in education. I know what I pay my plumber. I know what I pay my roofer. I know what I pay my... What Jeff the Trapper was trying to catch the raccoon trying to get into my roof. Money. And I can tell you, oh. they earn more yeah. than a secretary and probably a lawyer. I, I, blame, I blame the Kardashians because everybody wants, to be, an, everyone, everybody wants to be an influencer, right? So kids growing up, they're in the room. They're sitting on their phone. They want to go be a, 
a welder or go be an apprentice for a long time to learn how to lay bricks? Or do they want to create videos and be famous? If Kim Kardashian became a plumber, everybody would want to be a plumber. Okay, Kim? So that's just my little tip to What's you. Kardashians just as generic. Yeah, you're right. No, all of them should be plumbers. All right, thank you all very much. Stick around. Uh, we've got to wish a happy birthday to Bruce Willis. His family was celebrating today, and they shared an important message. So we'll show you this video that they put together. Bruce Willis's family is sharing this video on his 68th birthday. Willis was recently diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. Willis's wife, Emma, talking about the pain of dealing with her husband's diagnosis. So today is my husband's birthday. Um, I have started the morning by crying. <laughs> uh, as you can see by my swollen eyes and snotty nose, I just think it's important that you see all sides of this. Um, I always get this message or people always tell me that, oh, like, you're so strong. I don't know how you do it. I'm not given a choice. <laughs> I wish I was. Um, but I'm also raising two kids in this. Um, so sometimes in our lives, we have to put our big girl panties on and, uh, and get to it. I'm back with my panel. Um, that's very generous of her to put that out, I think, and very brave of them to show what it really looks like because Bruce Willis is an icon and he's an icon of sort of what you were talking about, David, that alpha male persona that he's had for so long. Sony Towers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to see him diminished is brave. They don't have to show no, this. It's, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's they're doing disease. it out of... The it's a very tough disease. My father had suffered in the last few years of life with dementia. Um, similarly, and it's, it's tough to watch somebody you love kind of fade away like that slowly. Yeah, it was the same with my grandmother, and it was just watching the, the lack of recognition that hurts the most, right? Those memories that you share, you walk into the room, and you realize that sometimes they're with you and sometimes they are not. So what I like is that, again, like we were talking about with depression, mental health, she's opening up about the realness of this. You know, they could put on a great front, they could talk about, you know, they could make this a PR moment, but I think that realness will help so many families in the long run. Well, they could say nothing at all, right? Mm -hmm. who, who of us would know that Bruce Willis and his family are going through this? First of all, I have the greatest admiration for this family because I, I, I can't even, I mean, as the current wife, the ex-wife, Demi Moore, the older kids, the younger kid, this is so civilized, I, I can't even imagine. It must show how much they all love Bruce yes. Willis. And they love each other and they understand the concept of family. Look, I think there's so many people around the world going through seeing somebody they love fading a little bit every day. And it is hard. It is painful. It is sad. And, you know, my mom died a year and a half ago. And I actually think, in a way, it's a privilege to be able to go through it. Right? to be able to be with them and give them love and surround them with support as they're going through this. And so I just, I, I am thankful to this family for, again, destigmatizing it and making people feel like they can relate. I totally agree. It is a gift. It is a gift, but when you're in it, it's so hard. And she talks about that. She says, like, I have times of sadness every day, grief every day. And so oh. when she's going through it, but she's sharing it publicly. I'll tell you what helps you get through it. 
family, friends, and talking about it and just people lifting you up, right? Because it's hard. And we're all, listen, if we get, if we're lucky, we're going to bury our parents. And I think for a lot of people that's, this is such a common experience to go through. And for a lot of people, I think it's a very isolating experience. And so I think that that's one thing that's nice about them doing this so publicly is that they are showing people something that I, th- I think a lot of people know on an intellectual level, but they don't see that this is, that so many people go through this and so many people have to find a way through this. And I think it, pro- it provides an example and it shows people that they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, back in the day, I was friends with Dana and Christopher Reeves and mm. Michael J. Fox. So many people have been so brave about sharing their stories publicly and and destigmatizing it and kind of educating people along the way. So, Such a great, he's another yeah. great uh, example, because yeah. I mean, Superman, you know, yeah. that, that we all get to see that that's all a facade, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all very much. Thanks for sharing that. So law enforcement in multiple cities are preparing in the event that former President Trump is indicted and people heed his calls for protests. We have all that. Coming up, you heard Anna. <laughs> President Trump says he's about to be indicted. Prosecutors say they have not made a final decision yet on criminal charges over that hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels. But law enforcement officials are getting ready. All NYPD officers are expected to be in uniform and ready to deploy. This is according to an internal memo. This is a source who shared this with CNN. And officials set up security cameras and barricades, as you can see in this video. This is near the courthouse where the grand jury investigation is taking place. I want to bring in my panel. We have New Jersey's finest. Someone wrote this, Ellie. Uh, I didn't approve of this. Ellie Honig. We also have Rabbi Jay Michelson, the always opinionated Patrick McEnroe, and econ expert Lynette Lopez. Also joining us is former Secret Service agent Jonathan Wackrow. Great to have you. Um, Jonathan, let me just start with you because of your Secret Service agent hat. Um, President Trump has called on his supporters to, quote, take our nation back. And so given your law enforcement skills, do you think what do you think that we'll see on the day that he's indicted if he's indicted? Well, Allison, good evening. You know, the first thing is, you know, unlike January 6th, law enforcement is prepared for any eventuality uh, that that may come out or uh, in response to any type of court action against the former president. And while we're not seeing any signs that large groups are actually animating around Trump's call for protests, law enforcement is not taking any chances. And what we've been seeing all day in the last few days is careful coordination between state, federal, uh, and local police and law enforcement agencies, you know, really uh, coming up with consequence management. How do they manage uh, every type of eventuality that could come out, whether it's peaceful protests all the way up to, uh, you, know, you know, acts of violence. So I think th- what we're seeing right now is, is a lot of planning. Hopefully a lot of that planning is not necessary. It doesn't materialize. But law enforcement in New York City is definitely ready for it. Well, I mean, I guess that's the silver lining of January 6th, that they yep. did learn something after that and to be prepared for what could be big events. But back to my panel here for a second. Um, do we think that former President Trump still has the power to summon a thousand bloodthirsty protesters to, on his behalf, express outrage if something happens to him? 
I think that one thing we saw in the in court appearance after court appearance of the January Sixers is that they didn't seem to think there would be consequences for what they did. And now it seems online that people realize, like, if you listen to Donald Trump, there will be consequences. You might go to jail. You might not ha- get to live in your mom's basement like Jason, you know, the the QAnon shaman or whatever anymore. So I think people now see that this is a boondoggle. It's not worth it to go out there and put yourself on the line for Donald Trump because he's not going to save you. That's interesting. Lynette makes a great point about the deterrent effect. And I would add, having worked in this exact area for eight and a half years where these courthouses are, all you will see there is cops, meaning FBI, NYPD, Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, prosecutors. Not that prosecutors like me are really going to do anything, except hide in our offices and write arrest warrants. Um, and courthouses and jails. That's all there is down there. It is the most, one of the most densely secured pieces of land in the country. And in fact, Jay, um, law enforcement, and um, Jonathan can back us up on this, are not seeing the kind of online chatter and not seeing the kind of preparations. And in fact, um, I think that the Capitol Police said that they've not received any requests for permits for demonstrations or marches. Well, this isn't really the get a permit crowd of, of protesters, <laughs> no. right? No. Uh, but I do think it's true. It's, it's fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, these, these guys have been burned before. And I think politically, if you think about the optics, right, a sort of another violent protest would not favor Trump, right, politically, right? This would kind of characterize this whole wing of the, of the Republican Party, fairly or unfairly, as this kind of violent gang. And I don't know that this is either, it's, it's not really the group of people who do a lot of political calculations either, uh, but kind of sitting on the sidelines, uh, the idea that this might actually be a peaceful protest with people airing their grievances, well, that would be good for the Trump wing of the party. Well, and I think that's exactly what Trump is hoping for. I mean, say what you want about Trump. I mean, the guy, to me, the guy's a genius. I remember reading Woodward's book, reading Wolf's book in the, early on in his presidency, Everyone was saying, this guy's crazy. He's good. Everything's chaotic in the White House. What part's the genius part? The genius part is that he knows what he's doing. He knows who he's playing to. He knows that by putting this out there, he's going to gain even more credibility, if that's the word, with his team. Now, with the rest of the public, it's going to be shaky. If he gets indicted, these things keep coming down the pike. It's going to be more and more difficult, I think, for him to raise money. But it sort of feels like he's running out of time. But is it because he can raise money off this? It sounds like... Well, I think he's going to try to. Whether or not he can is, I think, up for debate at this point. I'm not sure he can. He can definitely rally the base, but can he get the huge financial backing that he was able to get in in his previous couple of runs for the presidency? That, I think, is very much up for debate right now. Real shaky. Jonathan, it also strikes me that in terms of people's grievances, as we were just talking about, thinking that an election has been stolen or being told that an election has been stolen, it plays on people's anger more than Donald Trump paid off a porn star to hide uh, an alleged affair. I don't know if that makes you travel across the country and take up arms. Yeah, I mean, listen, we we know that uh, the, the former president can draw a crowd, a very large crowd, very quickly. But, you know, what's really, really interesting is since he put out that message, you know, a few days ago, you know, calling for, you know, uh, protests in New York, we're just not seeing that that rallying cry as we have you know, before. We're not seeing the crowds marshalling online, you know, giving that support and that call to action. Um, I don't want to say call to arms, but call to a- even action in New York City. 
um, you know, in, in the in preparation really for any type of court action. And I just want to go back to the security you know, aspect of this for just one quick second. You know, what's really interesting in talking about uh, sort of, you know, referred to as the genius of Donald Trump, right? You know, there's a lot of focus on the courthouse, the courthouse, the courthouse. But NYPD and other law enforcement entities have to be, you know, their remit is the entire city of New York. So there could be a wild card where Donald Trump may may not even, you know, uh, deal with the courthouse. He may be up at Trump Tower and decide to have a rally up in the streets around there for, you know, with his supporters. So the remit of the entire city is a real focus of the NYPD. That's why they have to just really be, you know, uh, you know, on their toes, ensuring rapid response, you know, capabilities to any type of eventuality. So it's really interesting playing for, you know, we're trying to predict the unknown here with Donald Trump. And, you know, we've seen how that's worked out in the past. Patrick, what about that? Do you think that people are, will not be as motivated because of this alleged crime as they were when they thought that something had been stolen from them? I think the individuals that will protest will still be motivated. But I think when you're talking about running for president, which he obviously is going to do again, that the, the, the backing of the big money players will not necessarily be there if this indictment comes out. I think for his base, the people that will come out for him, they'll be there to some extent. But as we already heard, I mean, New York City knows how to deal with issues like this better than any city in the country. So they are prepared and they're not going to let it get out of hand like it did on January 6th. I think it's important to remember that Trump is taking this show on the road. Okay, he's not just coming to New York City. He's not going to stop talking. He's going to do rallies all over the country. He might be in places that are more favorable to him, to his message, to a call to action than New York City. This isn't necessarily his town. And I would just like to say, as a New Yorker, I think we've suffered enough. Um, (laughs) But, you know, this isn't the end and this isn't the last indictment. And this isn't the last story he's going to tell. This isn't the last way he's going to spin it. So whatever I mean, we don't know if there'll next, be any indictments. You know, it, it, I mean, right. I, I understand that that's what people are predicting. Yeah. But we don't know. We don't know if there'll be an indictment here. We don't know if there'll be future yeah. indictments. It just feels as though things are gathering steam. Ellie, correct me if I'm wrong, from the, the uh, legal standpoint. Doesn't it feel as though things are getting closer? Yeah. This, indi- this investigation is clearly in endgame. They've put in their final witnesses. They've given Donald Trump his chance to go in. He sent in that lawyer, Robert Costello, today. It tells me that they're now at the decision point. Do we present this as prosecutors to a grand jury and ask them to indict, or do we pass on doing that? You and have do the you right think to do that, that. I mean, with all of this in the ether, do you think that Alvin Bragg would pass on this? I think he's gone too far. I think he, he's led everyone too too far down that path to double back now. But I do have real doubts about this case. I mean, when I step back and look at this case, I think that the conduct is borderline. We're really talking about just putting this expense of paying the money in the wrong column on the internal spreadsheets, basically. I think the evidence, as far as we know, and there's a lot we don't know, but as far as we, what we do know, is shaky. And here's another thing. The consequences here, if people are, have this fantasy of Donald Trump ending up in prison, it's, all, it's very likely not going to happen off of this case. This is either going to be a misdemeanor Nobody's going to jail on misdemeanor. You look at the books, it says up to one year. Sorry. Nobody's going to jail on a first-time nonviolent misdemeanor. Now, there's a variation where they could get it up to a Class E felony. That's the lowest-level felony. Again, if you practice in New York, it is quite rare for somebody, first-time convicted, nonviolent Class E felony, likely, not sure, but likely not going to go to prison. So what's even the end game of all of this? And, and I think Lynette makes a really good point. By leading with the weakest case, it, it does lend fuel to this claim of victimhood. Of They're trying to take out the leader, the front runner in the Republican Party over the 
mischaracterization of hush money payoffs to a porn star, it sounds ridiculous. And, and this is why I think to all, all of what Ilya just said, this is why Trump is loving this, because he's not going to go to jail. It's a, it's, a, it's a crime, so to speak, that isn't that serious when you look at the grand scheme of things, when you look at Georgia, when you look at January 6th. That's the stuff that's got some meat on it. I'm on the bone. This one is just... Locker room talk, lock- if you will. <laughs> you know, I've heard that like before. The, yeah. the winner on this one has to be Ron DeSantis, right, who somehow managed to <laughs> well, he had the get on both line. on Trump's yeah. side and then, like, with that line of, well, I don't know what right. it's like to pay off a prostitute, you know, for an affair. <laughs> politically, politically, that was quite astute. Um, Thank you all very much. All right. In the wake of the bank runs that we've seen over the past week, is every bank now too big to fail? Is that how we should consider them? What about everyday Americans who are bearing the brunt of rising interest rates? We have a lot to discuss. We'll be right back. What's going on with banks? Are all banks too big to fail? At this point, is that how we're treating them? Joe Pinion joins the panel. We're also back with Jay, Patrick, and Lynette. Um, Lynette, can you explain, after the SVB bank situation, uh, was this a teachable moment for all of us? What are we supposed to be thinking about whether our money is safe in banks? I think in America, we have a very sophisticated banking system. Um, I don't think depositors should lose their money in American banks. That's something that is currently being debated in Washington, et cetera. But remember, in SVB, in Signature Bank, the shareholders will not be compensated. The bondholders will not be compensated. And the executives are in trouble. And I don't think that's too big to fail. That's failure. These... Uh, these companies no longer exist. So the way that happened is how, theoretically, it's supposed to happen when the worst comes to pass. If the worst comes to pass, that is an example of the way it should go down. Exactly. Now, the three banks that have failed were all very heavily focused on Silicon Valley, which is currently you know, having its bubble popped in the market. Um, tech stocks, not doing great. Startups, crypto, all of that is not doing well now that interest rates have gone up. And so these banks didn't hedge. They didn't have other uh, sources of income to manage that risk as their assets went down. And so they exploded. Um, The question is, is this contagious? People are worried about the other regional banks. People are worried about banks that have a lot of deposits that are above $250,000, which is the FDIC security limit. But I don't think that the other regional banks in the United States were run like these banks that took on a lot of risk from Silicon Valley. We will learn, hopefully, how we want to deal with banks that are smaller in size. Maybe we need to put in place regulations that we had once rolled back during the Trump administration. But I don't think Silicon Valley is going to learn much. We'll have another explosion. We'll have another deterioration like this again coming from that sector. In the meantime, the Fed is going to continue raising rates um, because it's, that's how it's managing inflation. And the risk is not over for actors in our economy who went uh, a little over their skis during the last run in stocks and other assets. I think to your question, though, <clears throat> excuse me, Allison, I think that the, this is an example of where actually the federal government uh, not just here in the United States, but also in Europe with what happened with Credit Suisse in Switzerland, where that government got involved. Actually, the system is working, that yeah. they did the right things, the regulators did the right thing. To your point, Lynette, 
there was clearly mismanagement at the top of Silicon Valley Bank. So should we as individuals be wary? No. But if you're going to take a big chance, as they did at that bank, you're going to lose. You're going to lose big. So for the midsize, we need small and midsize banks all over the country for the good of the economy and the good of small towns. But it's certainly nice to have those big banks behind you supporting them. So I think the danger is for those small to mid-level banks over the course of the next few months where everybody's a little bit shaky about their deposits in those particular banks. It's an open kimono moment is what I would say. All of these regional banks are going to have to say, this is what we're holding. This is what we're marking to market. This is the value of the assets that we have. And you can judge for yourselves in the market whether or not this is good enough and whether or not we we are solid. You know, Wall Street has had questions about regional banks for a while because they're the main holders of commercial real estate in this company, in this country. And you know that Americans aren't going to work the way that they used to. We're not going to the office the way they used to. So it makes sense that we're wondering, hey, what are these assets worth? We need to understand this and and become more educated as investors, as market participants. But do I think that there's enough money in the regional banks to handle this? Yes. Uh, This is a psychological panic. I don't know if it's it's just psychological, right? So I think we can have two different conversations. The conversations about did they handle this crisis appropriately, not billing out the shareholders, but making sure the depositors were actually taken care of? Sure, that's one conversation. The other conversation is the fact about what about all the other uninsured deposits, right? Part of the reason why you had Silicon Valley Bank blow up and Signature Bank blow up is because they had respectively over 90% and over 80% of uninsured deposits. That type of concentration tends to lead to people having a lot of issues uh, dealing with Am I actually going to be able to get my money out of the bank? The other issue, to your point, talking about the commercial real estate problem that we have all across this country and all across the globe. You just had Blackstone uh, quietly uh, just actually default on a $560 million bond payment over in Europe. No one's really talking about that. So is there going to be some contagion? No one can say. But I think the real question is when you have Janet Yellen getting on television saying, no, we're not going to bail out all the uninsured depositors moving forward this was a special case and a special case only, I think then the question becomes, in the case of all these other banks, maybe they don't have 90 or 80, but if they do blow up, what happens to all those banks as well? Isn't there also a communication gap here? I mean, there's, I think, a a real perception that this is Wall Street versus Main Street. And I think maybe around this table, we understand that preventing contagion is an important thing. Again, that as as Lynette just said, that this was bailing out the the depositors, but not the shareholders, so it's not really a bailout. And yet, at the same time, there is a profound anger on Main Street that whenever the rich people get in trouble or they get over their skis, they get a bailout or they they get their funds covered. And these are to average Americans, hearing that it's accounts over $250,000. I mean, that's an unimaginable amount for the large majority of Americans. And I think we should kind of take this a little more seriously. Some of the rage that fills the the sort of the populist right is rooted in this economic reality in which some people do very well and some people have nothing. Well, I think even to that point, though, yes, $250,000 for the average American right now who doesn't have, you know, $500 for an emergency seems like an exorbitant amount of money. But uh, most poor people aren't actually hiring people to do other work. And so if we recognize that we have small businesses that are the backbone of our economy, most of them have payroll accounts. They also have receivables accounts and all these different accounts. So if you're talking about a situation where people who run our government, who are making these decisions, are going out on TV 
and saying, aka injecting uncertainty in the marketplace, saying moving forward, we might not be bailing out individuals at those medium banks. I think that that to me is something that's undiscussed and I think something that we have to get to the bottom of because if that's what she's telling the marketplace and that's what this administration and people moving forward are thinking, I think that we've got bigger problems that don't actually need to exist. So I'm not arguing the sort of economic point. I think on both sides of the aisle, there's an understanding that, again, these small businesses are the engines of the economy. We can't have small businesses that took 10 years to build disappear overnight because they lose their deposits. But I think, again, on both sides of the aisle, there's been a real failure to communicate what's at stake and to make it understandable uh, to people, again, who see things in a much more stark way than what we've just discussed. Well, there was a failure to communicate what was at stake when the Trump administration rolled back Dodd-Frank regulation that required these banks to keep a certain amount of capital to avoid situations like this. So, you know, we we don't really talk about, and it's really boring. I, I mean, I do it for a living, but I don't expect other people <laughs> to do it. That. We can see okay? that. Okay? Yeah. But I can understand why it's very boring to think about bank regulation, but in this case, we're seeing the real real-world consequences of 2018 of a push to deregulate, and also these banks that were then deregulated taking a lot of risk on stupid stuff like crypto. But I think, well, I think, I think well, Jay's point, though, is great about the, the fact that a lot of people are pissed off yeah. about this, and, yeah. you, and they have every right to be pissed off. But let's also remember that overall, the U.S. economy, despite all the interest rates rising, is doing pretty well. Yes. I mean, you've got an aging population. I mean, if you look at the job numbers, they're, they're as high as they've ever been. You've got an aging population. You've got the fact that this fiscal policy is ending. Then you've got the fact, of, because of COVID, how much things have changed in the last couple of years with productivity, with how people are working from home, yeah. with digitalization. So there's a lot of things change, changing. But overall, again, I liked, I'm looking at the positive here. The government did the right thing, and overall, we're doing pretty well. Somehow you all have made this super compelling, so I totally reject <laughs> your, your assessment. Well, I, I hope nobody... Well, yeah. well, hold on, hold well, that well, thought. Well, quickly, I just have to notice that uh, Barney Frank is actually one of those former members of the board <laughs> at Signature Bank who said it wasn't the rollback of Dodd-Frank, but the fact that crypto itself hmm. was under attack, and I think maybe trying to spread out that political raise, that partisan raids in case Silicon Valley Bank felt it was going to be singled out and then people on the right say, Or did crypto attack the bank? That's the question. Both can be true. Guys, this is fantastic. I didn't know I was going to have to wrap you so hard on the bank (laughs) subject. Um, Thank you all very much. Stick around because President, China's president, Xi, meets with Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin, calling the Russian leader his dear friend. Do Americans need to be paying more attention to what's happening there in that picture? We're going to talk about that next. Chinese leader uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin smiling and shaking hands in Moscow today. This is a critical time in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Xi is framing himself as a possible peacemaker. Is this moment a wake-up call for the U.S. and for all of us? We're back now with my panel. Um, What are we to make, Jay, of that photo of President Xi and President Putin there smiling, talking about what great friends they are? 
Well, I think the two of us might disagree about this, but for me, this is reaping the fruits of four years of isolationism and a sort of rhetoric against China uh, that isn't, hasn't been backed up by the kind of meaningful action uh, that would actually prevent this from happening. But, you know, maybe there is like a kind of silver lining to this cloud, which to me feels really ominous uh, for you know, people who care about fighting authoritarianism to see two authoritarian leaders uh, kind of reconcile in this way. The silver lining is that, ironically, you know, only Nixon can go to China, right? It took someone who was a, a hawk against uh, communism to actually reach out to China in the first place. Maybe she has the level of credibility that could actually float some kind of proposal to end the war in Ukraine. But this, to me, is profoundly disturbing. I sincerely doubt she has any real intentions of peace in Ukraine. I think he's what he's trying to do is bolster Putin, bolster that kind of ideology. But at the same time, he has to walk a fine line because China's economy is still recovering from COVID. It is still highly dependent on trade to on exports to the EU and the US. So while she is going to verbally back up Putin, what we need to watch is what he does. Does he send weapons? Or does, do, do, does trade between Russia and China, does that increase? Does China pick up the slack in terms of purchasing energy from Russia? And how would they get it to China? Because that's a land route, and we run the seas. Well, so, well, 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 I mean, a few things. There's a lot of things yeah. to work I mean, out. Things There's a lot to work unraveling. out. I, I think, number one, I, I would disagree with you. I, I, again, I just have to be that person. Uh, look, th- this began in a, deb- a debate stage in 2012 when President Barack Obama said that we had less horses and bayonets and that we needed to start thinking about different things. Now, that might have seemed crazy until two years later we had Russia go and invade Crimea and this uh, president did nothing. And now his co-pilot is back and the tanks have rolled across the border. We should have said something when the Russian hackers hacked our fuel supply with the Colonial Pipeline. We should have done something when the when the Russian hackers hiked uh, our beef supply with the JBS hackers. Nothing was done. Nothing was said. And now we have, again, a reluctant allies joint at the hip. To your point about the energy supply, yes, congratulations. The number one uh, exporter of uh, of uh, actual oil uh, to the Chinese Communist Party right now is Russia. They have surpassed Saudi Arabia, right? They have exports going to China. They've gone up 55%. We're looking at what's happening on the other way. Their exports to Russia have gone up 22%. So yes, uh, happy days are here again uh, for the ra- Russians and for the Chinese people, but for the rest of the world, we're terrified uh, because Ray Charles should have seen this coming and we've done nothing to prevent it from happening. Well, I'm not sure what we uh, could do. Yeah, I'm not sure what we could you make a valid point, but then the hawkish response is then what? What do we? Because the, 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 if you want to call it the Biden doctrine, I'm not sure he has one. But, but if I you think look that's at, a good point. Okay, but if you look at, <laughs> if you look at what he's done, he's tried to get us back in good graces with our NATO partners, particularly with what's happened between Russia and Ukraine. So he's tried to rebuild what essentially he argued Trump dissipated, right? Got rid of it. So if you want to go down that road of playing hardball, which my instinct sometimes is to do that too, like screw China, like we should take a harder line. But what does that actually look like? Well, yeah. If you actually do it, that's the and problem. And also what Biden did demonstrate to Beijing was that if you attack Taiwan, which is what we're worried about, there will be consequences. We can coordinate the world against you. Obviously, China's economy is a lot harder to attack than Russia's. But we are actually also doing that in the Biden era as well, in terms of our uh, technological export restrictions and our attempts to create more uh, infrastructure here in the United States for semiconductors and all the things so, so that we I mean, get when from when you East look Asia. at that photo, it doesn't seem as ominous to you? 
oh, it's terribly ominous. But I, what I'm saying is that she has to walk fine line. I, he still depends on the rest of the world. And Russia is not going to buy all the things that we buy from China. And China's economy has not advanced to the point where it doesn't need exports. They're desperately trying to create a domestic economy that can run on its own, like the United States, which is run by its own consumer uh, uh consumers and doesn't necessarily rely on exports, but China's not there yet. Well, and she has to think about that for his people. Well, it's also a net food and energy well, importer. I would agree, but that is also why it's terrifying that they're meeting, because the pipelines that are going from Russia to China are accelerating. If we also see right now, again, if you're just looking at the economy, the sanctions that were put in place were supposed to effectively destroy the Russian economy. Uh, it was supposed to be down 10 points on GDP, 15% down on GDP. Turns out we're only down 2 to 4 points on GDP, depending on how you measure it. So again, yes, I agree that she has to walk that fine line. But at the end of the day, uh, I think when you're talking about the Biden doctrine, it's to show up a day late and many dollars short and not actually dealing with the fact that you could have had the preemptive sanctions against Russia. You chose not to do that until the tanks had rolled across the border. You could have gone in there and said, oh, we're going to stick to the point that we're not going to have the tanks and you add the tanks and we're not going to give them the fighter jets. Now we're considering giving them the fighter jets. So I think, again, the lack of a doctrine, the lack of saying we're going to draw this line and actually come here with... I think with that all speed is just making sure that Europe is in lockstep with the United States. You and, know, we've been dragging the Germans and the French across the And he's got to play the politics domestically because the foreign policy is now very dependent on what ha- is happening domestically. So if, if you look at what's happened in Russia and Ukraine, he's made it, Biden, meaning the policies that he's put in place there with our European allies, has made it a lot more difficult for them. I feel like yeah. we're not Time machine, though. I feel like I'm hearing really good, smart, you know, Republican current policy hawk talking points, which were used to be the consensus reality of centrists and maybe centrist the center right in Washington D.C. 20 years ago. But the last Republican administration, which arguably was coddling Putin, which called you know, which still calls Ukraine a kind of client state and and defames our allies. Uh, To me, this this summit, uh, this dark summit, feels like the culmination of these very irresponsible policies. So I'd, I'd be on board with this I, sort of I, I regular hawkishness. I just don't know how we can call it irresponsible policy when he was the only president that didn't have Ukraine go and have an invasion from the Russian party. So because I he just didn't think need the, to. Putin felt very comfortable with Trump in office. Well, he didn't need to pull stunts. I mean, like even if it it wasn't, it's not a stunt. We've got a, we've got a lot of dead Ukrainians. Problem, right? So I don't and think also, it's a stunt. I think the hard truth is that no matter how you want to frame this, yep. we need to have a Biden doctrine. It does not exist. He has yet to be able to articulate what does victory in Ukraine look like. And part of that uh, is why we have all of this uncertainty leading to this dark summit, which has all of us. Lastly, Allison, I don't find this ominous at all. I find it realistic. Okay. Thank you all very much for that. Now, closer to home, California's governor is rolling out an ambitious plan to reduce homelessness in that state. It involves tiny houses. We'll explain what that means next. California Governor Gavin Newsom hoping to cut homelessness in his state by 15 percent by the year 2025. One of his first steps is this. What you're seeing on your screen right now, 1,200 tiny homes. The price tag for these tiny homes, 1,200 of them, is $30 million. Newsom says the project can be finished by this fall. I'm back with my panel right now. Um, So, Patrick, 
California has a problem. I mean, yes. all of my friends who live in California say it is noticeable. It's dramatic. The amount of homeless uh, people, tent cities that have cropped up there. So anything they're trying, this is a creative idea. Um, I'm not sure how long, how well it would work. I'll tell you a little bit more about these tiny homes. They take 90 minutes to assemble. That sounds quick. great. Okay. That's quick. How big are they? 120 square feet. That's small. That's but, small. But it's better than living on the street. Definitely. And to your point, I was in California last summer with a couple of my daughters, and I, we, we walked around to go visit one of my ex-professors, by the way, at, uh, where I went to college, and it was scary. I mean, I was like, maybe I shouldn't have brought my daughters to see. I mean, it was, it was hard to see. It was really hard. And I you know, love that part of the country. I went to college out there. But so I say to Governor Newsom, you know, well done to try to do something to help what is obviously a crisis that's pretty much out of control out, you know, in a lot of places in the country, but particularly out there. So um, just a few more stats for you, Lynette. They uh, in California, there's 115,000 homeless people, they estimate. 44 out of every 10,000 people are experiencing homelessness. 67 percent of them are unsheltered. And it's up 6.2 percent from um, two years ago. Yeah, and we're about to face economic hardship in this country. I think um, people are losing their jobs. So, I, I mean, particularly California people, tech sector, media. So I, I, I imagine that this will trickle down and, and people will be going through a tough time. It's going to be harder to pay rent. You know, there some people and economic nerds in my world talk about kind of two Americas. One America where people have fat savings accounts and weathered the financial, uh, the pandemic pretty well. And then there's an America where people are falling behind on their rent and credit card payments are getting too high. And we're seeing this like bifurcation in the economy. And this is the kind of situation that increases risk of homelessness. And so it's good to see Governor Newsom doing something. something yeah. So this, yeah, this we should understand, I mean, this is really a drop in the bucket. It's really like a symbolic amount. I mean, you said how many homeless people there are. This is like 1%. But what I found interesting, I took a little dive on this issue uh, and when I heard we were going to be talking about it. And I looked at the Republican proposals and the Democrat proposals in California, and there's, they're actually really similar. So a lot of times, you know, you, there might be a stereotype that on the right, there's going to be law and order, and on the left, it might be sort of deep causes or social workers. But I looked at, I went through the Republican proposals, and they're all about deep causes. This is not an issue which we could just kind of, you know, lock them up and throw away the key kind of solution. And I, it was occurring to me that in a very partisan, hyper-partisan environment, there's actually a lot of agreement, right? So better, more funding for mental health, right? Better solutions than shelters, which often have a lot of violence in them, which it's really hard to raise kids, where, it's hard, where there's a lack of stability and where it's not possible really to... And, the, you know, the tiny house idea uh, is just one drop in the bucket, but that is a model, you know, because Democrats have to do something about this issue. What was interesting is, right, so the solutions seemed kind of similar, but it's Democrat mayors who are taking a bath on this and on crime, and we've talked about this before, that this is not, there has to be a, a true compassionate way to address the root causes of this challenge. And it's going to hurt a lot of folks uh, because it is going to get worse. Jay, that's great context. And I owe you one, Joe. They're wrapping me. Oh, I, no, it's yeah. fine. So thank you. I owe you one. <laughs> thank you for all of that. Okay, up next, the family of a South Carolina teenager who died mysteriously in 2015 wants his body exhumed and a new investigation opened. Does this have something to do with the Murdoch murders? The family of South Carolina teenager Stephen Smith wants a new investigation into the mysterious death, his mysterious death in 2015. The call for this new investigation comes as a result of the investigation into the murders of Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch. CNN's Diane Gallagher has more. Where's your mercy? 
It's been nearly eight years since the body of 19-year-old Stephen Smith was found in the middle of this country road in Hampton County, South Carolina. The teen's death gained national attention in June 2021, nearly six years after he was killed, when the state law enforcement division announced that it was opening an investigation into his death based upon information gathered during the course of the double murder investigation of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. Verdict guilty. Alec Murdoch was sentenced to life in prison for the murders of his wife and son earlier this month. For the rest of your natural life. And investigators have never revealed what information they gleaned from the Murdoch murders investigation that resulted in his case being opened. Today, new private efforts launched to uncover the circumstances, spearheaded by Smith's mother, Sandy, and two attorneys. The first goal, exhuming Smith's body. We think we have good cause to show why a fresh set of eyes on this would be beneficial. It kind of has to start with a fresh new look at the body. Initial reports said the nursing student died on July 8, 2015 from blunt force head trauma, originally said to be the result of a hit and run. But the accident investigation team report cited, quote, no vehicle debris, skid marks or injuries consistent with someone being struck by a vehicle. I just love my son. And since I couldn't protect him, I'm going to fight for him. Smith's mother said she worried her son may have been targeted because he was gay. According to police files, during interviews with friends and family after Smith's death, the Murdoch name kept coming up. But no suspect has ever been named, and authorities have never connected anyone in the Murdoch family to Smith's death. Still, rumors and innuendo persisted as the Murdoch case spawned podcasts, documentaries, and a rabid social media following, often with Buster Murdoch, a former classmate of Smith, at the center of the speculation. He broke his silence in a statement provided to CNN this morning, saying in part, I have tried my best to ignore the vicious rumors about my involvement in Stephen Smith's tragic death that continue to be published in the media as I grieve over the brutal murders of my mother and brother. These baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death, and my heart goes out to the Smith family. Smith's attorneys caution the public, this is not about the Murdochs. This is not a Alex Murdoch 2.0 or any Murdoch 2.0. This is a Stephen Smith 2.0. It's all about Stephen. And that's what's at the heart of this here. It's a mother who for nearly eight years has simply wanted to find out what happened to her son and who did it to him. Sandy Smith started a GoFundMe. She's raised around $75,000 already, which she says she plans to use to pay for uh, the independent autopsy and to exhume her son's body if a judge signs off on a petition allowing it. Uh, we did ask SLED about the death investigation of Stephen Smith. They told us that they had made progress but said it was still active and ongoing. Allison? Diane, thank you. Joining me now, attorney and legal affairs commentator, Ariva Martin. Ariva, this is tragic that this mother has not had any information that they've never resolved this crime after all of these years. So, of course, she wants, you know, the, the investigation reopened. And this is a strange case to know that there weren't the telltale signs of a normal hit and run around Stephen Smith's body. You're right, Allison. This is a very strange case. And we know this mother has always been an eye 
laws with law enforcement as it relates to deeming this a hit and run accident because the evidence at the scene didn't support that conclusion. But I also feel bad, Allison, for Buster Murdoch. He's grieving the loss of his mother and his younger brother. His father is incarcerated for life. And yet there are all these innuendos about him and somehow linking him to the murder when there is no evidence to to do so. So I hope that the law enforcement agencies in that town, in that county, uh, you know, complete their investigation. And if Buster is not involved in this murder, I hope that his name is clear. So I, could, I can't imagine the, the, you know, the trauma uh, and the pain that he continues to experience as a result of his own losses. You're right. I mean, there's certainly no evidence that we know of that the public is privy to. That's true. But there is this feeling that um, an unusual amount of people end up dead around the Murdochs. And so there was a housekeeper who died under somewhat suspicious circumstances in their home. There was the teenager who was on the boat with Paul Murdoch, the young woman who was on the who was killed on the boat with Paul Murdoch. There's this strange case. I don't know why the Murdoch name keeps coming up in this investigation. And then, of course, there's Maggie and Paul who were killed. So it, it's... I mean, I don't know. As you say, that that is innuendo. That's just innuendo. But it does. It is starting to feel spooky around them. And I can see why, Allison, there are conspiracy theories that have arisen as a result of all the deaths you just identified. But I think we have to stick to the evidence. And those other deaths that you just identified, there are facts. Uh, in those cases that have come to light. And in some cases, we know with respect to uh, Paul and the young girl that died on the boat, there's evidence uh, linking him to that murder. There's just no evidence at this point that ties anyone from the Murdoch family uh, to the death of this young man. Tragic as it may be, we just have to wait until the law enforcement uh, investigation is completed before we'll know any additional information. My heart goes out to this family, but I I don't want to traumatize, re-traumatize Buster because of a tragedy that this family has experienced. You're right. And we really appreciate that cautionary note. Ariva Martin, great to see you. Thank you for all that. Thanks, Allison. And before we go, I just want to clarify something that one of our guests said about Stormy Daniels in an earlier conversation. She's an adult film star, and Governor DeSantis's remarks were that he did not know what it was like to pay, quote, hush money to a porn star, unquote. Thanks so much for watching tonight. See you tomorrow night. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.